Specialty Story, session number 160. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, every week that I release an episode, where I get to talk to amazing physicians and hear about their journeys to medicine and what brought them to their specialty. Now, this week is interesting. I have a physician who also just published his first book. I think it's his first book, a great nonfiction book that I've been listening to on Audible. Very interesting story from Dr. Joel Shulkin, a developmental behavioral pediatrician. Now, Dr. Shulkin released his first book called Adverse Effects, which you can find at authorjoelshulkin.com or just search for it on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. We have a great conversation about how Dr. Shulkin became interested in developmental behavioral pediatrics and his journey there, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, and much more. As always, we start the conversation by finding out how Dr. Shulkin first became interested in developmental behavioral pediatrics. I was in the Air Force, um, and I had gone through the HPSD program, which is the health profession. Scholarship like, program. Scholarship <laughs> program, yeah. yeah. Um, and I actually started in my second year of medical school. Um, and so when it came time for clerkships, uh, we needed to do two rotations at military hospitals. Yep. Um, I really wanted to do either cardiology, um, I don't even remember what, I think it was dermatology maybe was the other one that I wanted to do. And of course, those were like the most popular ones and there was nothing available. And I <laughs> called to California, I called to several locations um, and nothing was available. And I finally called um, Wilford Hall in Texas to find out what they had available for pediatric uh, rotations. And they said, well, we have this developmental medicine rotation. And they explained, you know, what it was um that it deals with you know different developmental disorders like adhd autism learning disabilities um, and he said and if you go to if you do that rotation you actually spend a week at this camp for kids with disabilities and special needs i said well that sounds really cool let me do that <laughs> <laughs> a week out of the hospital score <laughs> sure, yeah so uh, of course it was in the middle of summer in, in San Antonio, texas, texas. Yeah. So it wasn't exactly cool but um but no, I really enjoyed the camp. Um, I mean, there were kids with so many different, you know, range of disabilities. Um, and I really liked uh, Chuck Morton, who was the developmental pediatrician who was overseeing it. Um, and just said, this is really, I really enjoy doing this. And when it came time to choosing my residencies, um, I ended up matching at Wilfred Hall. Nice. And so, um, the whole time I was there, and uh, I found that develop anytime that I was dealing with developmental pediat- developmental issues, even my attending said, "This is like your forte. This is like what you're <laughs> really good at." Yeah. Um, and Dr. Morton actually ended up becoming my mentor. Um, so I did extra time in there, um, so that when it came time to do my assignment to pay back the military, um, you know, there that was a time that they were looking at. 
sending people off to like Minot, North Dakota <laughs> and different rotations, different places kind of far off. But there was the opportunity that I could do uh, work on in a developmental clinic in Germany. And I said, well, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to do. And so I spent three years out there um, getting real world experience in basically a community health setting um, as the only local developmental specialist, even though I hadn't even done you know, a fellowship um, and kind of learned on my own. I, I read everything I could find on autism, everything I could find on ADHD, just trying to learn more and more. Um, and ultimately, when it came back to uh, when it's time to end my time with the military, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to go back and do fellowship in developmental pediatrics. Mm. Very cool. So let me let me ask you this. I think a lot of students listening to this will be like, okay, that sounds interesting. Why why is this their specialized field inside of pediatrics versus psychiatry or psychology? Why why do we need pediatrics to be versed in this as well? Right. So psychiatry really focuses on mental health issues, um, and a lot of times they're really looking more at older kids too, you know, depression, anxiety. There are psychiatrists who do, um, you know, understand uh, autism. Uh, Certainly they manage ADHD. Um, They tend not to do as much with the learning disabilities um, because they're really focused more on the medical medication side. There are exceptions. Um, Stanley Greenspan, who is the creator of the DIR floor time model for treating autism, was a child psychiatrist who really understood the developmental aspects um, of the disorder. Um, most don't spend that much time in that. And in fact, you know, as we know, most psychiatrists don't actually do rotations for more than a limited rotation in pediatrics. Yeah. Um, psychologists, of course, are coming from a non-MD standpoint. So they're doing more on the diagnosis and sometimes on the treatment, but not so much on the overall medical piece. Um, Neurologists also do deal with some of these things, but they're really focused more on, again, the neurologic side, um, doing EEGs, more on the, the physical things that they can quantify. Yeah. And so in developmental pediatrics, and it started out as developmental pediatrics, and then it kind of branched off. Um, uh, Boston Children's kind of led the field of going more toward developmental behavioral, which really focuses on early intervention on um, the behavioral aspects of different developmental disorders and kind of looking at the developmental trajectories, whereas neurodevelopmental medicine, um, which was led by Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, um, they focused more on the neurologic side. So looking at developmental disabilities, so kind of the long-term aspects of various neurological conditions um, and that transition to adulthood. Yeah. So I was really interested in the early intervention side, um, which is why I went the DBP route. And we're really looking at children as a whole entity. And mm-hmm. so we look at the fact that if you have a child with autism um, or ADHD, there are other medical pieces that play into that. Yeah. Um, so of course, not only can those conditions affect their eating and their sleeping um, and their health behaviors, but 
if you have a medical condition, that's going to affect your sleep, which can affect your focus and attention. If you have um, food allergies or sensitivities, and you have a child who is autistic who has um, sensory issues, then that can affect their behavior and their development as well. So from the pediatric standpoint, we're really looking at that whole aspect. And so we're not just looking at the diagnosis and the mental health side or the neurologic side, but we're looking at all those general pediatric issues. And in fact, when I was practicing in Germany, um, I was spending one day a week in the general pediatric clinic. I was taking general peds call. I was really staying up to date on general pediatric issues. And in fact, even today, um, I still end up doing a lot of those general pediatric issues. I end up seeing kids and thinking about, well, could there be an autoimmune factor at play mm-hmm. here? Um, could this child have a, um, a dermatologic um, issue that could be playing into this? Could they have psoriasis or eczema? Um, if they have GI issues, of course, you know, constipation, diarrhea, how is that affecting their behavior? So even though I'm not a primary care physician, I'm not assuming that role or trying to create the medical home, I really am considering all those general pediatric issues. And sometimes I'm picking up on things that the primary doctor missed, even in the general pediatric aspect and telling them you need to go back and get this evaluated. Yeah. Interesting. What are, what do you think are some important traits or the biggest, most important trait for a physician to be successful in your role? In developmental behavioral pediatric? Yeah. Um, well, definitely. I, one, you have to, I think you have to be a little bit of a detective. You have to like a mystery. Um, because again, if we're diagnosing autism, we can't just do uh, an x-ray or an MRI or an EEG. That's not going to give us the answer. Um, really have to do a lot of interviewing, asking questions. Um, we need to, when we're doing an exam, we're, we are doing a general physical exam to rule out things. And that's, again, just like a detective, we have to rule out the impossible before we can get to the, the inevitable. Um, and we have to um, really differentiate. We do a lot of differential diagnosis, kind of teasing out and saying, well, this kind of looks like one thing, but it could also be something else. Yeah. Um, you also have to be um, patient um, because the kids don't always do what you want them to do and they don't always uh, give you those clues that you want right away. And sometimes you have to be even more patient the parents. Yeah. Um, and so if you're not somebody who likes talking to people, this isn't really the field for you because most of what I do is gathering information and counseling the parents. Yeah. Um, trying to point them in the right direction, explain to them about helping them to understand their child because um, with developmental disorders, 90% of it really is, well, I, you know, I always say, I always tell parents that 50% of treating a child with autism or any kind of development disorder is trying to teach that child the skills they need and trying to define what they need. The other 50% is helping everybody else to understand them. And often that's the harder 50%. Yeah. Um, and so I think those are two aspects that are really important for anybody going into this field. Um, 
time management, of course, is a is a big one. Being because we our reports are not short. Um, my average report for a new patient is probably somewhere between three to five pages. Wow. Um, kind of summarizing all of the uh, information that parents bring in, as well as everything that they report and what I observe, um, yeah. and any testing that you know the psychologist or any little neurodevelopmental testing that I might do. Um, and I think a curiosity as well, you know, just the desire to keep learning because I'm constantly learning more and more as I go along. Um, I've done outside training in ways that we treat autism so that I can understand it better and be able to better counsel parents. Um, I'm doing two talks in the next couple of months on autism, kind of where we are and where we need to be. And so I have gone back and read and, and reviewed the new literature to see what what are we seeing, finding now for treatments? What are we finding for those complementary alternative medicine things that keep coming up, whether it's CBD oil or stem cells? You know, has anything panned out or not? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and with that, there has to be a little bit of um, ability to kind of tease out when someone is telling you everything when they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, that not detective part. What's that? That detective part coming in. Exactly. I mean, not quite like Dr. House. Uh, <laughs> Everyone lies. To you. Yep. <laughs> but, but at least, you know, realize that, okay, maybe I'm not getting the whole story here and I need to talk to the teachers or I need to talk yeah. to somebody else to get all the information that I need. You're, you're not sending residents in to break into people's houses like House, right? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> not, not yet. Not like that. Not yet. So, so talk about it from a a, a diagnosis standpoint. Uh, are patients coming to you for a diagnosis because they're struggling at school, they're struggling at home, or are they coming to you with a diagnosis and you're laying out treatment plans? Both. Um, so. We do have psychologists here who do the, the formal testing. In Florida, Medicaid does not pay for any developmental testing or even psychological testing. Um, and so we have a process where we have psychology fellows who can do some testing. And, and as a result, our psychologists do most of the actual testing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I do get kids, though, and I do get uh, a fair number who come to me for diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's fairly straightforward or if it's enough that I can gather enough information, then I will feel comfortable giving the diagnosis as well, even if without testing. Um, I used to, before we found out that Medicaid wasn't paying for testing, I was doing a lot of the testing myself, uh, as well as the interpretation and the feedback to the parents. So I, it, it, at least I understand, I can really evaluate the testing that has been done to be able to counsel parents as well, Yeah, um, knowing, having done it myself. Uh, but I do get a number of families who already have a diagnosis as well, whether it's from our psychologist or someone in the apartment or um, from somewhere else. Um, and they're either just establishing care for monitoring um, or trying to get help of where do we go from here. Yeah. And so I see kids. Um, once, I, once I've seen them, I continue to follow them. It's uncommon that I don't follow them. Um, if they're under three, I actually see them every uh, six months or even more frequent if they're less than 18 months because there's so much that can change developmentally in even that short time at that young age, um, especially if the diagnosis are, is unclear or if we're starting new therapies and especially intensive therapies, a lot can change. Yeah. Uh, 
for older kids, I usually see them every one year, um, one to two years, depending on you know, how old they are. Um, and then I see them up at 18, or they turn, uh, I'm sorry, or they graduate high school, whichever comes last. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, because yeah, there are kids with disabilities who stay in high school until they're 23 or 25. Yeah. Um, not all developmental pediatricians do that. Some cut off earlier. Um, there was another uh, developmental pediatrician around here who would only see kids up to age six, and that was it. Wow. Uh, really depends on your practice, but for me, that's kind of what most of the others that I've worked with have stuck to. Um, and so I think that just allows me to really see these kids over time. What does a typical day look like for you? So I typically see one to two new patients a day and then the rest are follow-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, I'm fortunate in, this, in, the, in some ways because we spend so much time on counseling and, and, um, and on gathering information that I'm allowed 90 minutes for a new, new patient and 30 to 60 minutes for a follow-up. Um, a lot of my follow-ups, if it's been more than three or four months, I usually do, or six months or more, I definitely do a 60-minute follow-up just because often there's so many issues that, are, <laughs> that have come up in that time. Um, if it's a really stable you know, patient that's coming in for a medication check, then I might do a 30-minute follow-up. Yeah. That's nice. Um, it's, it's not that typical see 30 or 40 patients a day scenario. Right. Yeah. And I've, and I've been fortunate that um, the hospital that I work for, um, they have come to appreciate and understand that my field is about qual- quality, not quantity. Yeah. Good. What does the call look like for you? I'm, I'm assuming call and overnight midnight phone calls are not a thing in that specialty. No, and I did it, did my time in, in general pediatrics when I was in the military, but now um, no real call. Uh, I mean, I am on call, meaning that I can get paged. It's only happened like maybe five times in the six years that I've been here um, that I've gotten a call after hours just with like a question or something that came up. I don't get called into the emergency room or inpatient. Um, I don't even really do inpatient consultations. It's Two times that I have gotten called, they really weren't appropriate. Like they wanted me to evaluate for autism in a child who was impatient and there was no parent available. I'm like, no, we can't do that. And there's no reason to do that. When they get discharged, you call us and then we will do the evaluation in the appropriate setting. Um, But beyond that, I don't get those middle of night calls and I don't do any weekends either. So it makes for good, good life outside of working. Exactly. And that is, you know, so developmental pediatricians do get paid less than most other specialties, but it's a trade-off yeah. of that quality of life. Yeah. You, you slap pediatrician on every specialty, you get paid less. And now you're saying developmental behavioral, even, even less so. Right. And, that, and mainly because we don't take call. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So talk about the training path. You, you mentioned going, it sounds like you did general pediatric residency. And then after your, your air force time went back and did a fellowship, what is, what does the training path look like now? It's pretty much the same. I mean, if you're doing air force, of course, it's, you'd have that or military would have that extra time, but most, uh, do medical school, do their pediatric residency, 
which is uh, three years, and then you have a three-year fellowship. Um, many go into fellowship right after residency, um, but I do know uh, some, you know, even now who go into practice first, and then they go back and do fellowship later. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Go, is, out, go out to practice and see what you like, see what you don't like, and then go back and do your fellowship training. There's pluses and minuses because then you also, uh, I mean, on one hand, I, I'm glad that I got that opportunity because I did, you know, again, understand what a community setting was like um, versus many of my classmates who only knew the Ivy Tower. Um, and you get to kind of see and make sure this is what you really want. But then again, you, are, you do get kind of used to a certain amount, you know, your, your paycheck. And then suddenly that's getting cut off as you go back to fellowship. So <laughs> ah, pay's not important. We do this for the patients, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> what, uh, the, the three-year fellowship, what are you doing during that fellowship? Are you, it, it sounds like mostly outpatient type training. It's outpatient. Um, and every program is a little different. They have some kind of a call. Um, there are some programs that do like inpatient call. And actually, if you're, if you're doing the neurodevelopmental disabilities, um, then you're actually doing two years of neurology. So you're yeah. actually uh, do, taking adult neurology call and doing all those other, um, all the other aspects. For developmental behavior pediatrics, our call was we would work uh, like an urgent care clinic um after hours like three or four hours uh a week or like once or twice a month or something like that um the programs have also changed a little bit now many of them have like this lend program which is a leadership program so they may do a year of that where they're doing like leadership courses and even like a leadership project um they didn't really have that when i was a fellow um for me what we did was um I was actually able to, at, at Boston Children's, go to Harvard for my Master's of Public Health during fellowship. Mm. So I spent two years taking classes at Harvard at the same time as I was seeing patients. So um, that was carved out in my schedule as well as outpatient clinic. We um, had lectures from a psychiatrist and from a neurologist um, that really helped to give us that that foundation to build on. Um, and we had to do a research project. Um, and uh, and I, I know that is still the case. So everybody yeah. has to do a research project. So mine was originally going to be a hands-on project looking at international adoptees um, who are showing signs of autism to kind of see which ones um, had those autism symptoms resolve after being adopted versus those that didn't. Mm. Um, just at the time that I was getting really going on that, uh, the Hague Convention came out and international adoptions like came to a screeching halt <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. So I ended up changing and doing more of a qualitative study, which actually helped doing that MPH because I was able to take a course on qualitative interviewing. And so... Um, I actually did a study where I was interviewing prospective parents and parents who had adopted about their process and how the Hague changes affected them. And I ended up getting that study published um, a couple of years later. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. What do you wish for, for the future pediatrician out there? What do you wish they knew 
about developmental behavioral pediatrics so that they can help you and help their future patients? Yeah, so I think most really, even general pediatricians don't necessarily know what we do, um, especially those who've been in practice for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do a Google on my name and you look at any of those patient rating websites, more than half of them have me listed as a psychiatrist. And I get referrals now and then for behavioral pediatrics, or they're referred to psychiatry and and Dr. Shulkin, you know, and so I think there is a lot of confusion out there. Um, I think the main thing is is that I would love for general pediatricians to know is that um, when you're referring to me, what you're looking for, well, first of all, it really helps if there's a question. Yep. And... That's, that's, that's consults 101. Always ask a question. <laughs> yep. And that was what was drilled into, into us, you know, in the military, you yep. know, is that if you, we had, I had specialists who, if we sent a referral with no question, they would just send it back and say, I'm not seeing them until you tell me what you want. <laughs> um, but I get quite, I get referrals all the time for development or, um, or referrals for, uh, speech delay. And then I say, well, but they're getting speech therapy. What, do you expect me to do at this point? What are you looking yeah. for me to assist at this point? So having a good question really helps. I've gotten some, and uh, this drove me crazy. I got one that actually was referred for development. And when I looked down, it was for pubertal development. <laughs> not, not your specialty? <laughs> Wrong specialty, <laughs> right. Endocrine, developmental, behavioral, same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I got on the phone to the pediatrician and said, I think you need to understand what we do. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that's important. Um, recognizing that what I do really is trying to differentiate between different developmental disorders, um, counseling parents on what they can do to help promote their child's development. Mm-hmm. Um, I do manage medications, but that's a very small part of my practice. There are the developmental disorders who do more. Um, there are some who do less. Um, but, uh, and there's some who do none, but that's really a small part. What I'm really focused more in, on is the therapies, the interventions that these children need, um, and watching them develop over time to help counsel parents along the way as new challenges arise. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into developmental behavioral pediatrics? Um, well... I guess, you know, if I knew more, I think even if I knew the paycheck, I still would have gone into it. So that's probably not the fact. That's good. Um, I don't know. I think my, my perspective on autism has changed a lot. Um, you know, when I first started out, I saw it as kind of this ambiguous uh, disorder. I really only knew about the kids with severe types. Um, and now I've really come to appreciate it more as, is neurodiversity that autism really is just a different way of thinking, a way of brain functioning. Um, all really, if I think of it as, as just a different type of personality more than anything. Mm. Um, and that early intervention is so key. There's no medicine that treats it. Um, and that is something that I really would love for primary care physicians to understand the the one complaint that I get from parents more than any other complaint about their, their pediatrician, their family practice doctor, or their flight doctor, um, is 
that they weren't listening to them, um, that they had concerns and they kept being told, well, let's just wait and see. Let's wait and see. I've never in 15 years of practice had a parent come to me and say, I really wish my doctor had told me to wait a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I have because personal experience with that. Them. Yeah, my 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 daughter has has uh, some medical issues, and uh, it was this when I was still in the Air Force, and we went to my my friend right down the hall, the pediatrician. She goes, "Oh, it's, it's normal, it's, it's developmental delay. Let's just wait. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see." Okay, I suppose like several months later. Okay, let's get early invention in, involved, and they they say, "Oh, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong, nothing wrong," and then finally we're like, "No, we're going to see someone," and hey, something's wrong. So right, yeah. Yeah, and the, and the worst thing we can do with child development is wait because, like I said, there's so much that changes, but the first five years are critical. Yeah. And, you know, after five years, the rate of brain development drops dramatically. And mm -hmm. so we really want to try to intervene as early as possible. And I would much prefer, because my wait time is getting longer and longer, um, I'm currently the only developmental pediatrician practicing in. The, in the St. Pete area, there was one other one that just moved to Tampa, mm. um, but up, but he's still getting established. So up to this point, I've been the only one that was seeing patients yeah. um, for a little while, and so my wait time is currently like six months, wow. which isn't bad compared to some other parts of the country. But yeah. anytime that we're talking about six months as being not bad for <laughs> seeing a specialist, that says something right there. Um, yeah. But I would much rather that a child come to me having waited that six months and saying, but in the meantime, we got all these therapies, we got this going, yep. um, and we're seeing this progress, then, well, we waited six months to see you, and things have gotten worse. Yep. Yep. What do you like the most about being a developmental pediatrician? <sighs> well, I think, I mean, the lifestyle is definitely, you know, good for me, especially, you know having time for my family, um, and for my writing. Um, but also I really like teaching. And so it was a good opportunity to incorporate that teaching aspect into my practice. Um, as I said before, I would say if I have a 90 minute pay appointment, I'm spending half an hour of that just teaching the parents to, you know, about their child and, and how they can help their child. Um, and that's something that I really enjoy. That's something that you just don't find in most other specialties. What do you like the least? Uh, I think the hardest, I, I'm going to say what's more of the hardest point is the kids who, who lack the resources. Um, yeah. You know, it's, if you have Medicaid here, um, you can be waiting two to three years just to get therapy. Yeah. Um, and... Or if, or if they have a parent who just doesn't have the ability to advocate for their child. And that's just frustrating because I feel like I want to help this child, especially if a child who I know we could do something to help them and not be able to do so. Um, I think that's the hardest part is, is knowing that, okay, there are some kids that I can help and there's some that I can do the best I can, but it still may not be enough. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Again, having a, a child with some some special needs, 
I'm plugged into that world a little bit more. And we see a lot of parents moving because Medicaid in different states covers different things. I've never really thought about it from the, the provider standpoint. As a physician, have you ever gone like, like Florida Medicaid is just horrendous. Florida healthcare in general, the, the stuff there's uh, not the best. Um, I, I'm going to move to a state where I know my patients are going to be better treated, and I can I can treat them better. Has, has that ever crossed your mind? Well, I've always, you know, I always have to factor in my family as yep. well, um, and I've actually lived in multiple places. I mean, I've trained in Boston. You know, in Massachusetts is considered, you know, is, yeah. well, at least Boston is considered one of those top areas to get yep. through. Now, if you go a couple hours west into western Massachusetts, it's not the case. Um, Or if you go over the border into New Hampshire, where I grew up, you're not going to be able to get services as easily. Um, I lived in South Carolina before I moved here, and the resources weren't much better. Um, And so I kind of looked at that and said, well, and I've even told families, you could move to somewhere where, you know, it's supposed to be great for services, but you still, you may not be able to get. Yep. things going as well as you think you will. Um, so I've looked at it more as, you know, I, it's frustrating, but I know what's here. Yeah. I know where I can direct parents. Um, and I have the connections with the Florida chapter of the AAP, with the Florida Medical Association to try to advocate to yeah. get changes made. Yeah. Someone's got to be there. So you might as well fight the right. fight. Right. Cool. Do you see any major changes coming to the field? Are there any sort of therapeutics in the future for for autism, for ADD, ADHD that that may be life changing for some of these patients? I don't see anything groundbreaking in the near future. I mean, I think we finally understand some things and have evidence for some things that have been around for a while, like. Mm-hmm floor time, these relationship-based interventions, early step Denver model, there's been good evidence showing that, um, as well as just a recent study that found that it may not even be what you're using as how you're using it and how early you're using it that makes the difference. Um, things like stem cells and all that, even the Duke study that finally got released showed no significant changes with that. Mm treating autism um and so i've again been looking at all the different things there is no cure for autism and again i think if we think of it as neurodiversity we're not necessarily we really ne- shouldn't necessarily be looking for a cure anyways we should be looking at how can we help these kids be successful and happy yeah um so i think even and i've and i've actually explained this to parents and i've used this as as kind of an argument for why i'm such an advocate for vaccines mm-hmm. um, and the fact that I've never gotten a, a single cent from a, from a drug company. <laughs> you don't, vaccine. you don't get, you don't get extra money for meat and quotas. Come on. I, I, I read that. it on Facebook. I ab- <laughs> yeah. I get absolutely nothing. I don't get any money for endorsing them or anything. But uh, the fact is, even if, even if that were the case, even if you found that, Oh, there is something that we could do that would prevent anybody from getting autism from developing autism. I would still have a job. Uh, there's still plenty of other kids with learning problems, yeah. with other developmental disorders, speech disorders, and so on, that would keep me busy for a long time. Plus, I also specialize with international adoptees. Um, so I don't have any vested interest in preventing kids 
uh, in preventing uh, the discovery of a cure for autism. Mm -hmm. um, I'm only interested in finding out how we can help these kids to be happy. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a developmental behavioral pediatrician? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, surgery was not for me. Intensive care was <laughs> not for me. Um, and I like general pediatrics, um, but certainly I didn't like being called at 2 a.m. for delivery and for consultations. Um, and, and I also like the fact that I have time to sit down and talk with families. And I think that's my biggest piece is that I'm not feeling like I have to be cranking out numbers so much as actually providing quality care. Yeah. Let's talk about your book for a minute. You you mentioned earlier you like the lifestyle, you have time for your family, and you have time for writing. You have a book, as we're recording this, that comes out tomorrow, okay. uh, September 15th, called Adverse Effects. Um, yes. I, I love the cover uh, with this bloody pill on the ground. <laughs> what What's the book about? So... It is about a psychiatrist in Boston. Oh, just uh, like you, right? A psychiatrist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. So she's a psychiatrist who um, specializes in memory. And she is testing an experimental memory drug on her patients um, who have amnesia, or at least partial or global, or global amnesia. Did she have IRB uh, approval? So that's so she's working for a company, <laughs> a drug company who has that approval. Okay, good. But two of her patients become psychotic. One kills himself. The other ends up killing others and himself. Interesting. Um, and she becomes very driven to find out what's going on because she's also taking the same drug for her amnesia. Oh, <laughs> very interesting. Okay. No, yeah. no spoilers. Um, very cool. That sounds that sounds exciting. And and you have another book on the way. This is book one of a series of of books, the Memory Thieves series. That's a cool name. Too. Correct. Um, well, I look forward to to reading that and and watching it on the the big picture one day. The, the big yeah. screen, the big screen. <laughs> um, any last minute words of advice for students who? maybe have always thought they wanted to go into pediatrics, have never heard of developmental behavioral pediatrics before and, and aren't uh, um, scared away by the, the several times you mentioned the, the low pay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would say, you know, when you're doing your rotation, especially if you do a pediatric rotation, try to see if you can go to a developmental clinic mm. um, and see what it's like and talk with them. I think when you, if you talk with other developmental pediatricians, like myself, you'll get the same kind of enthusiasm. And I think that's one thing is, um, you know, yes, you mentioned the pay, you mentioned things like that. But when you talk with us, we have a passion. We love what we do. And I think if you're somebody who is looking for that kind of field, where you're going to look forward to each day going into work and not be like, oh my gosh, it's Monday, I can't believe I have to get out of bed, um, then this, is, this may be the right field for you. And the best way to find out is to, uh, is to sit in and see what it's like. All right, there you have it. Another great episode for you. 
with Dr. Joel Shulkin. Thanks for checking that out. Don't forget to check out his book, Adverse Effects. I'm looking at it right now on on my computer and the way that the image uh, works on his um on on his website the the text changes and so it was freaking me out for a second but anyway uh, go check it out and and hopefully you like it if you haven't started checking out e-shadowing yet I, I consider e-shadowing kind of an extension of specialty stories e-shadowing is a program that just started this week every monday at 8 p.m eastern we are going live with a physician to talk about their specialty, we're going to do some case studies, a lot of Q&A. The platform that I'm using should be able to hold 5,000 students. We have 4,200 already registered for tonight's session. So go over to eshadowing.com to learn more about it. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.